This week's guest is Mike McGraw, the head coach of the Baylor Bears. He's been the head coach at Baylor since taking over in 2014. He's been at the uh, part of the national championship team three different times, once at Oklahoma State as an assistant, the other as the head coach in 2006, and also as the assistant in 2014. But he's been in Waco since 2014, as I mentioned. Let's welcome Mike McGraw to the podcast. Mike, welcome. Hey, thanks, Jim. I, I appreciate you having me on today. I'm looking forward to this. Well, after a few technical difficulties, we got it back together, and I guess that's what happens when you're uh, technically uh, challenged as I am. But uh, kids are getting back in school. I know it's an exciting season coming up for the 22-23 season, but uh, I always like to get our listeners to kind of get to know the coaches and the people we have on a little bit better. But tell us a little about yourself and how you got started in golf and maybe some of your early influences on uh, when you were playing junior golf. Well, thank you, Jim. I uh, was not really a golfer early on. My dad was a, a country club golf professional in Ponca City, Oklahoma. Okay. And so he got all the kids. We had seven kids in my family. He got all the kids started at age five. Wow. He tried to get me started at age five, and I just re- I, I refused to play golf. I hated it, didn't see any interest in it whatsoever, and I wanted it to be on my terms, and he allowed me to do that, so... I stayed home until I was about nine and a half and then asked him if I could go to the golf course. And I've been going to a golf course every day for 53 years. So that's all I know now. Did you play other sports growing up? I was a runner. Okay. I had good foot speed, loved running. Uh, I went out for the basketball team, but that was a lot of bench time there. And <laughs> that was about it. But I did have good foot speed. I just couldn't do anything that required true coordination. And so uh, I remember Charles Howell telling me that. He wasn't an athlete, but he just taught himself how to hit a golf ball, and that's what I did. I just figured I could I could do that movement, but other than that, other than running, I was not an athlete. Well, and you played college golf at Central Oklahoma for uh, three, lettered there three different times, honorable mention, All-American, so you actually could play golf better than you're kind of leading on there. But uh, what was that college experience like for you uh, playing there at Central Oklahoma? Well, at the time, we didn't have a true coach. We had the athletic director named Charles Murdoch, great man. Um, he just he would take us to one tournament, and then the baseball coach would take us, and then the women's basketball coach would take us. We coached ourselves, and we had Robin Freeman on the team who ended up yeah. on the PGA Tour. You, you probably ran into Robin when you were on tour. I'm Absolutely. Sure. Um, yeah, Robin was on the team, great player, and we had you know three or four other guys like me that were really solid, nice players for at the time in NAI schools, now Division Two. But uh, but we, we actually did pretty well. We finished third at Nationals one year, and uh, we coached ourselves, though. There, it was not an experience where you would say you really looked to a coach for any guidance because we really didn't have that. So what was it like coaching yourselves? How did you kind of keep yourselves? I know Robin Freeman pretty well, so how did you kind of keep everybody in line? Uh, it, it was it kind of a self-motivating type uh, situation? Completely. We, we, since we knew we didn't have a, a coach to guide us, and Robin had actually been at Oklahoma State uh, for a year, playing for, or two years maybe, playing for Mike Holder. Never really did play there, and then he transferred to Central Oklahoma. And um, I think he had seen what coaching looked like, sort of, And but we really had no idea what we were doing. We just set our own qualifying, if you will. We uh, went and we played, I, I hate to say this, for the NCAA. We played for money every day, so <laughs> we were trying to, you know, you didn't want to lose a dollar, you didn't want to lose a Coke. So we we had something on the line every day, and then we obviously had the qualifying rounds, and it was sort of just 
put together by the players and we motivate each other and we you know at the heart we're all competitors so you you use that to your advantage but we didn't really know what we were doing we just kind of uh, it was improv- improvisation, if you will. Yeah, you say that about you know putting a dollar on the line. That's that. I think that's just golf in general. Everybody, the everyday weekend. Hey, I'll play a dollar for the front, dollar for the back, you know, or whatever. And I think for some people, they have to have whether it's a dollar or ten dollars or whatever something on the line to motivate them. I always kind of felt like you know I was trying to shoot the lowest score, but. I like the fact that you were playing for something because there was something on the line that meant something. And I, and I think that probably did help you along the way. But uh, how did you get into coaching? Uh, you, you talked about that you didn't have a coach in college, and now you're one of the top coaches in uh, the NCAA and the men's side. But how did you get into coaching? Well, I guess we did sort of have a coach. Art Proctor was the head golf professional at Kickingbird Golf Course where we played mm-hmm. in Edmond. And Art couldn't go to every tournament. You know, he would – he would give us some lessons occasionally. So we really did have a coach, but it wasn't full-time. Right. Art was still playing golf, and he was obviously running a business. So, But he kind of gave me this thought that he thought I could be a good coach one day. And so he made me in charge of the junior golf program. Okay. At and so when I got that started kind of like that. I played many tour golf for three years, and I, I don't guess it's really a job when you come home and your pockets are empty every time. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Wow, it was not all that ideal, but I, I was a decent player, I really was. But um, but I knew I was more suited to coach, and it was kind of Art's insistence that I work with the junior golfers in Edmond, and that's kind of where I got my start. And then when I was helping the high school golf team, the then high school coach Mark Maid, who wasn't a golfer, uh, he you know actually asked for my help with the team, and so Art was having me run the junior program. Mark was he- having me help the high school golfers. That's kind of how I got into coaching. And years later, I became the golf coach at the high school, and uh, the rest is history. But it, it it started with two different men saying, hey, I think you can do this. I remember Art Proctor. I remember that name, and I, I didn't know him that well, but I do remember his name and, and big influence on a lot of players. You, you coached in high school. Uh, it, it, it's really amazing how people get into coaching. Sometimes their dad coaches, sometimes they don't. But you mentioned you had seven kids, so your dad kind of was your coach early on, kind of got you into that. But uh, you coach at the high school level. How did you get into the coaching side on the college level? Uh, how did you get in there? Because I believe you became the assistant at Oklahoma State uh, not after that, not soon long after the uh, high school uh, run there. Right. So I had coached about nine years at Oklahoma State and, I mean, pardon me, at Edmond High School. And then uh, Mike Holder had an opening. Bruce Hepler had taken the job mm. at Georgia Tech. And then the following year, I think Pip Keeney was getting his graduate degree from Mike. And he was just kind of a volunteer assistant coach, if you will. So Mike went without an assistant for a year or so. And I just called him up one day and said, Mike, you know, I'd love to. Uh, he, he asked me to work his camp. So I called him back the next day and said, hey, I've been thinking about it. Why don't I just work your camp and then stay and be your assistant? And it it took some coaxing, and I had to go up to Stillwater again to meet with him to, to do it. But he finally agreed that he would do that and, and give me an opportunity to coach at that at the collegiate level. And it was my dream job. So it's my New York Yankees job, if you will. Yeah. Had to be go to Oklahoma State and do that because I – I mean, when I was a kid growing up, Mike Holder used to bring his golf team to my dad's course in Ponca City and play every once in a while. And I was looking up to players like Lindy Miller and Tom Jones and Jamie Gonzalez and Britt Harrison and 
Bob Tway and guys like that that were just great players. So I thought I would play for Mike at Oklahoma State, but that didn't work out. So, uh, But I did eventually get to coach for him, which was great. He taught me a lot. What was the pressure like? Because, I mean, they're the premier college golf team. There's a few others, but, I mean, there's not many that can compete with them. What was it like? What were those pressures? What were your responsibilities there as that assistant? Well, my responsibilities were he told me the very first day I went to work for him, he said, I don't really know what to tell you to do. I'm probably not going to do a lot of instructing. You're just going to have to observe and see what I do and then ask questions. And I said, okay. And he said, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of the bad cop, and you're going to be the good cop. So I'm going to cut him off at the knees, and you're going to put your arm around him and make him feel good about being short. And so it was like, <laughs> okay, I kind of understood my role. You know, Mike was a pretty tough dude. He was really, really old school, hard-nosed, and he knew that having a person like me to kind of smooth off those rough edges would benefit him. And he was right. I, I was able to do that. And my very first year, Charles Powell and Boyd Summerhays were freshmen. And, wow. You know, a lot a lot of times they leaned on me to kind of, you know, basically what I did was, hey, Coach Holder, he said this, but this is really what he means. And he trust me, he's got your back. And he did. Mike was just tough. And sometimes the kids didn't know how to handle it. Uh, sometimes they did. But that was my role. And obviously to recruit for him as well. Yeah, Bob, Bobby Knight kind of had that same mentality, and they were both very successful. And, and you know, it's, it's different because golf, and you've seen it, and we'll get into that a little bit later, how much it's changed since then. But you have to have the good cop, and you have to have a bad cop. It's kind of like parenting. There's always one of the parents has got to be kind of the disciplinarian, and the other one kind of puts their arm around them, how much they love them, and, and on and on. So it's very – I think the key to that is you have to be fair and consistent. I think if you can be fair and consistent, no matter whether it's coaching – whether it's parenting, you're going to be successful. And, and kids are looking for a little bit of discipline and some organization and, and some leadership like that. But you uh, were there for several years, the assistant, and then you became the head coach. Uh, talk about a dream job as the assistant. Now you're the head coach. What was what, The day you were announced as head coach, tell us those feelings and what that was like. Well, first of all, I was in a state of shock. <laughs> Mike had told me when he hired me as an assistant, you'll never be the golf coach at Oklahoma State. It will never happen. So – Let's prepare you for another job someplace else. And then when Mike hired me, I said, Mike, you told me eight years ago I would never be the coach, and I appreciate it. And, yes, I accept, but why? And he said, well, you're my first hire as the athletic director at Oklahoma State. And he said, I'm going to make a lot of hires as, a, as an athletic director. I know I am. And he said, the one thing I know, I know two things. One, I'm never going to truly know how hard a person works, you know, so what their work ethic is like. And I'm not going to know their true character either until they've been here. So it's, it's after the fact that I'm going to find those things out. In your case, Mike, I knew both because he had watched me every day for eight years. Mm -hmm. He was like, you can handle this. And so that was good to hear that, you know, that I could handle it. He felt like I could handle it. And the truth is he did me a huge favor. He, did not, he was not around at all for the first two years I was the coach. I had to go ask him for advice. In other words, he, he wanted to let me sink or swim on my own, mm -hmm. and he didn't want to micromanage the program. He wanted to be my program at that time. Uh, and Labron Harris had done it for him when he became the coach. Labron was not around, and he did not step on Mike's toes, and Mike had to learn it on his own. So I think Mike prepared me for that in, in a lot of ways. And, and another thing he taught me that was unbelievable was the true value of confrontation and why it's a good thing. Hmm. Because people, 
think of confrontation as being negative. You have a negative connotation. And for Mike, it was just about clearing the air. This is what I think. Now, what do you think? And then the two of us could talk and then move on. And truly, he might chew you out in one minute, and 10 minutes later, he's over here giving a golf lesson, and he asks you a question. It's like it never happened because he was – to him, it was like, I'm going to give you some instruction, but I'm moving on. I'm not going to sit here and wallow in the mire of this this angst that you feel right now. He moved on immediately, but he taught me the true value of confrontation. I'll always be thankful for that. Yeah, that's an amazing – because you answered the question I was going to come up with. What, what did you learn from him? Obviously, those are some of the things uh, – uh, you won a national championship uh, there as the head coach. You also uh, as, uh, kind of jumped over. You were on the women's side. You helped out with the women's coaching side too. Uh, uh, what was it? What are some of the differences? Because I've seen that Alan Bratton, who's there now, coached the women's side. What's some of the differences you see coaching the women versus maybe the men? Well, the women operate differently. There's no doubt about it. You kind of have to start with a lot of other things like relationships and feelings and you kind of go through some layers of things that maybe you don't have to on the men's side Mm -hmm. but once you get to those layers they're just athletes and they want to be coached and maybe they want to be coached even more than the men which is really a, a wonderful thing so once as a coach once i got past those layers that i didn't know much about if you will um i had kind of i mean the very first day on the on the job i'd gotten the job in august and i'm kind of ashamed of this but i'm gonna tell it anyway um so we didn't have any uniforms, and we had basically the same returning team with one new freshman. And so I said, girls, we're going to have to play the first few tournaments without new uniforms. We're going to use last year's uniforms to start with. and then. But right now I need to find out what everybody's size is. Like, Karin, what do you weigh, like a buck 20? And she looked at me with this glare in her eyes. She said, coach, you can't ask a girl that. I weighed a buck 20 in the seventh grade. I learned the hard way, Jim, that there's certain layers you got to get through. And once you get through those, oh, my gosh, those female golfers wanted to be coached. Yep. They wanted to be shown how to do it. I was, I learned more about coaching that year than any other year I've ever coached. You know, you say that Garrett Runyon was the assistant at LSU for years under Chuck Winstead and took over the women's program. I actually coached my third daughter, Kathleen, her last year. And it was the same thing. He had Alexis Rather, who's been there for several years, is the assistant but he says he's, they just want to learn, and they'll listen. But there's also they play the game different than the guys, and, and that was the adjustment he had to make after maybe that first year is the guys – I'm picking on guys because we're guys, but sometimes they just go after everything, and they don't play the strategy in, in some of the shots. They, they're almost a little too aggressive, and they don't want to listen. And, and he said he just has loved working with the women because of just what you said. They want to learn, uh, and they don't get a lot of coaching. And, and, and yes, as a father of three daughters, you do not talk about weight, and you tell them how great they look in that dress every time. <laughs> you learn that quickly. And, and uh, But it is. I, I just I loved watching my daughters play and spend those time with their teammates and just watch. They're like sponges. Uh, and it was so much fun to just to every once in a while give them some advice. But uh, you mentioned that you coached some pretty incredible players at Oklahoma State. Ricky Fowler, Hunter Mahan, Morgan Hoffman, Charles Howell you've mentioned, Casey Wittenberg. What's it like coaching those great talents like that? Well, I've coached their equal as far as high school golfers in Oklahoma. So we had the best high school golfers. But the, the difference was like a lot. It was not even close to being the same when I went from Edmond North High School in May to Oklahoma State that summer, it was a big difference. But 
what I loved about it, Mike did give me some advice early on because we had Charles Howell and Boyd Summerhays who were the, the reigning two years in a row call, or junior players of the year in the United States, and he had them both coming in as freshmen. He said, Mike, I just want you to know, I don't know how we're going to coach these two guys. I don't know what it's going to look like, but we have a big responsibility because they expect elite training. That's why they came here. And when you, when you work with a player like that, you've got to understand there's very few things you can say that are actually going to help him, but there's a whole lot of things you can say that might hinder his growth as a player. So Mike made me think about that. It's like it's a big responsibility coaching somebody who has that dream and who's already achieved at a high level. And then you've got to be careful what you say and how you say it and why you say it. So Mike did teach a lot of that. He just didn't tell me he was teaching me. He just sort of it came out. But um, anyway, it was wonderful working with highly motivated guys. I always tell guys, recruits nowadays, I'm not in the business to recruit to uh, coach effort. So, you know, and so don't expect to come here at Baylor and, and expect me to try to motivate you. I don't, you know, you've heard the old term, Jim, light a fire under him. Yeah. Well, if he doesn't like the flame, he'll just move away from the flame. So what I instead what I try to do is go inside their heart where there's that little flickering flame and put a blowtorch to that. And that's what you had with every one of those players like Charles Howe or Hunter Mahan or whomever. It's like they knew they were going to be golfers. And so your job was to get inside their head and their heart and figure out what's there and then just let it let it go because it was going to be an inferno before you knew it. And so that was the biggest difference. These guys wanted to play the tour. And my high school guys were just hoping to play college, a lot of them. Yeah, and you mentioned Boyd Summerhays. I totally spaced and forgot that he was part of that program as well. He's got some great kids. Of course, he coaches Tony Finau. But you hit on something, and it's part of why I do this podcast and why the book Only One Shot was written. Is it, We wanted to kind of figure out what makes an elite player elite and why they are elite. You kind of hit on that. Uh, but in, you've hit a little bit on that. But your definition, what separates that elite player? You talked about elite training and highly motivated. Is that part of what makes them elite? That's part of what makes them elite, but not all of them had the same background. So I think, to me, the one thing that is kind of similar and consistent, if you cut them open, like just cut them right down the sternum, crack open that rib cage, inside the DNA says, I'm a golfer. And... It's like, they, yeah, they got their degree or they know about business or they have sort of this backup plan, but they never even consider the backup plan. Mm. It's like, I'm a golfer and that's what I'm going to do. And I think that was what the difference was with these guys. They came there to get the training to go to the next level because that's all they ever thought they were going to do. When I asked Ricky Fowler, what, what would you do, Ricky, if I stripped away golf from you? So today you have no more golf. Tomorrow you got to figure out what you're going to do with your life. And he was stumped dumbfounded he said i've never considered that hmm. so ever since i've been asking prospects that same question because if a kid says i have no idea then i'm kind of going okay <laughs> he might be the right kid he may have a real plan and i'm not saying and not not uh, condoning don't have a backup plan do but you know have a degree get your degree do that but inside where your dreams and your your dreams are stored inside that heart of yours it's like I'm going to be a golfer. I'm going to be a professional golfer. That's where I'm headed. And then every day your your training is driven by that. Well, you think of a lot of athletes that golf's one of the few sports they can play up in their well as old as they want to, 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, but you do have to have a plan B. 
and so many don't. And I think that's some great advice. You've been considered one of the best recruiters in college golf, and you've hit on it a little bit. But what are you looking for in a college player specifically when you're out there recruiting now at Baylor? And you've done a great job there, kind of revitalizing their program. What are you specifically, and you've just been out there all summer uh, recruiting, what are you looking for in those, those kids you're looking at? Okay, so all of us have to look for good golfers because we wouldn't have a good team if you didn't have good golfers. So get they, get that one out of the way. You've already determined these are good players that I'm looking at. But beyond that, I think character and grit. And mm. I know that's pretty say You hear that all the time. But the truth is, if their character's not good, that's going to affect my whole team chemistry. It's, it's going to make that out of balance. And if they're not gritty, how are they ever going to handle any adversity? And I promise you, I don't say if it happens, it's going to happen. And you're going to have adversity playing for me. And maybe I'm going to be part of that adversity possibly one day. You know, maybe I said something you didn't like and said it the wrong way. But if you're gritty, you know, I look, all the greatest players of all times have a certain grit level that's pretty high. And even just a tour player, you played how many years on the PGA Tour? 20 full-time and then some part-time, so a long time. Had, had to be some grit inside of you. Yeah. You couldn't have lasted long, Jim. So that's what you're looking for in, an, in a student-athlete. Character first after you've already gotten past the threshold of he's a good player. But character and then grit. If you got those two, you can probably – it's a good recipe, I think. You mentioned team chemistry, and you've got – I don't mean this disrespectful, but you got egos because of the things mm-hmm. you just mentioned. How do you, you can't, I don't feel like you can force team chemistry. I think it comes natural, but how do you kind of balance those egos and, and the great players coming in there with that grit in that, uh, the things you talked about that, that, that good players and they're highly motivated. How do you balance that and get that team chemistry? Well, in recruiting, you're, you're telling your current players, the kids are recruiting, you're telling all these players at the same time, you all want the same thing. You all want to win a national championship. You all want to go on being All-American. You all want to play the PGA Tour. So it's like we've already got that in common. So that's great. And so don't worry about the fact we have different personalities or one guy might rub somebody a little bit the wrong way. That's okay. That's part of being competitive. But the other part about it is if so we've all got this dream of doing this, but if, if I can't absolutely say to a guy, listen, you, you, I mean, I want to go on to the PGA Tour. You need me. What do you mean, Coach? You need me to go out and find the best players possible, iron sharpens iron, to make you better. And if I find a really great player, come in and thank me. Mm. Thanks. That, that, that's going to really push me. And I'm telling you, the greatest resource a coach can provide a player is another good player. That's yeah. the best resource ever. That's no doubt about that. And, and that's 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 the challenge for coach. And it's changed. And think about when you were coaching in high school, how has your job changed over these years at Oklahoma State and then at Alabama for the one season and now at Baylor? How has coaching changed? The kids don't change, but how have you had to adjust to the changes that are going on now? I think that a couple things. One – we have more layers. So the university has to add layers onto what we're doing. The big 12 conference adds layers to what we have to do. And so does the NCAA. So all three entities have added more paperwork, more computer work, more covering your, you know, what, mm-hmm. work, you know, just kind of like liability, that type of thing. So that's changed, which is not ideal, but the kids themselves are pretty much the same. Yeah. If you get right down to it and they want to, they're crying out for some sort of, 
boundaries, some, some controls, something to help guide me. They're, they may not say it, but they are crying out for it. And so I think you can teach the same lessons that Bear Bryant and Vince Lombardi taught you know, so many years ago. You just deliver it differently. So that's the biggest change. The delivery is slightly different, but the kids, they want that same. They want to be held accountable. Great players definitely want to be held accountable. Absolutely. Even though it might be you know, you got the NIL, now you got transfer portal. I mean, that's mm-hmm. as much as things that I see. It's really changed in the big sports, but even golf, we're seeing that. Uh, Ryan Hibble's done a great job of getting some of the uh, in the transfer portal. Uh, Goderup's yeah. one of them uh, to name has had some great success. But, you know, how do you handle that? Are you looking in there for the, in the transfer portal? Because I know a lot of coaches are. Yeah, you'd have to, you'd be, have to be crazy not to at least look in there. Um, you know, it, it costs a lot more to go to school at Baylor than it does Oklahoma or Oklahoma State. So, you know, it's it's a, not apples to apples, if you will. But that's okay. I, I knew that going in. That's not a problem. The only thing I would change about the portal, if it was me right now, is if a kid's unhappy, he can or wants to leave or has a desire he wants to get out of town, that he, he puts his name in the portal. Well, that immediately sets up a meeting between compliance, mm-hmm. uh, administrator, the player and his parents and the coach. And we just have a meeting and we get in this meeting together because I want to teach the kid. It's okay. You, you got a bad situation. That's fine. But be a man and handle it with another adult in a, in a very adult way. Uh, coach McGraw, I don't like what you're doing. Why don't you like what I'm doing? Well, I think you didn't present it the same way you said it was going to be in recruiting. I don't think you're fair all the time, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And I'm going to say, well, gosh, I didn't know you felt that way. Is there anything I can say or do to change? No, no, sir, nothing. Okay, then I shake his hand, I sign the deal, and then his name goes in the portal. But I think we're missing something big, and I've been preaching this for a while. If they're going to have this portal, which is fine, every kid deserves another chance, but let's at least have him confront the issue, which is I don't agree with what the coach is doing or I don't like my situation. And we're not teaching him that. We're letting him bypass all of that valuable confrontation actually oh preach it I, I agree with you communication i think that's the biggest problem is you've got to have and you mentioned good cop bad cop and, and i know for some of these kids they don't they don't want to feel like they're opening up they feel like there's oh it's a sign of weakness but i mean you've got to have the com- com- communication i would tell my girls that when they were playing or even when they were playing high school basketball i said go talk to the coach tell him what you know i'm not going to get involved that's not my job Go find out why am I not playing? Well, how do I need to do this? How can I get better? How can I make the starting squad? I, it's so important. And I think it's changing a little bit because I remember when my oldest was being recruited, 2010 or whatever it was, kids were having to commit in ninth and 10th grade. Now it's a lot better. But still, they don't know until they get on campus, uh, until they get there, whether they like it or not. Just because like you said, if you have the communication, you have the meeting, that solves a little bit of the problem. If you just let them jump around, I, I don't think that's healthy. Uh, you can't just quit. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot of it in the major sports. I'm not happy here. I'm just going to leave. Have the communication. Uh, let's talk. Let's sit down and talk. Let's figure this out. I think that's some great advice on, on that part there. Uh, that, that doesn't get talked about or not. It's just everybody says, all right, I'm going to transfer. And I think it's not fair to the coaches, the teams, 
it's really not fair to the, the kid, the student athlete that's making that decision. And I think that's one of the things that's going to be challenging ahead as, as we look forward to it. But uh, when you have kids out there and you're recruiting, what advice do you have for the parents and the kids? How do they get in touch with Mike McGraw at Baylor? How, what are they, you, know, you talked about what you're looking for, but what advice do you have for them trying to prepare to make the decision and go through this recruiting process? Well, first of all, I would have the player himself write the emails or the letters. Handwritten letters are still valuable, whether you like them or not. Yep. I know you can't write 500 letters, but but so any direct communication that the prospect can have with the coach is way better. Uh, it's okay when the parents get involved later, you know, maybe on a visit or that type of thing. But as far as the initial, the coaches want to hear from the player for sure. If I'm a prospect, and I'm trying to figure out amongst all these options, well, my good golf or bad golf is going to its going to be a sliding scale on how many options I have, correct? If I play great, there's pretty much a lot of options. But I, I like to tell a prospect this. If you want to figure out who you want to go play for, I would find a coach that understands all the sacrifices I've made, the hundreds of thousands of golf balls I've hit, all the discipline that I've had to put in, all the um, – disappointments I've had I want that coach to understand everything I've been through before he ever met me because I want him to know how important this is to me and symbolically when you tell a coach you're going to come play for that coach you are symbolically handing over this dream you have of going on and playing and all the the stress and all the problems and all the great things and bad things and all the discipline and, and disappointments before you met him, you're handing that over too and saying, Coach, let's walk alongside me right now. I know it's, it's a little dramatized, over-dramatizing there, but the truth is if you had a dream and the coach really doesn't care and he just sees you as a production unit, that's not good. Mm-mm. I mean, you need to be way more than your resume. It's got to be all in uh, as far as the coach. So that's what I would be looking for if I was a prospect, somebody who knows that and understands that about me. Yeah, that's great advice. This has been great. This has been one of our best informative podcasts, and I'm, that's why I want you coaches on there because you you help me understand that. Even though my kids are older and they're not they're not being uh, you know recruited, I still have a lot of these juniors that'll come up to me and ask me for advice, and and that's what I tell them. I, like you said, handwritten notes. So that's one thing, and I know we're old school, but my dad, when I first was on tour. 35 members from their club. I mean, I wrote thank you notes. I wrote thank you notes to the uh, tournaments, to the directors, uh, to the sponsors. I just thought it was such an important thing to do. It's amazing what a two-minute handwritten note means to certain people. Uh, It it is such great advice because I think that we're missing out on that. But we mentioned the season's coming up, 22-23 season's coming up. Uh, What's it looking forward to the Baylor uh, men's golf team? Really excited about our our fall season. We we go up to Minnesota for the Gopher Invitational. Play a great golf course called Winsong Farm outside mm-hmm. of Minneapolis. Wonderful golf course. And then we're back home for a few days, and we go up to Chicago at Olympia Field. Wow! Did you play the Open there. Uh, I've played there, but did not play the Open. But what an incredible golf course! Oh, oh and they're going to spread my, part of my ashes at Olympia Field. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> And then we come back and play Trinity Forest in Dallas at okay. the news tournament and then the Big 12 match play championship. We're also hosting a one-day event at Ridgewood Country Club right here in Waco called the Bear Brawl. We hosted it last year, and we're going to do it again this year for teams that whose schedule was a little off and they have one extra day just hanging out there. 
So we've got several teams that can do that. You mentioned it sounds like, and I've talked to a lot of coaches about this, with regionals being moved all over the country. Uh, the NCAAs have kind of found a permanent home at uh, Greyhawk and then at uh, La Costa in a couple of years. But how important is it to kind of have a variety of golf courses? Maybe go to Chicago, maybe go to Minneapolis, like you mentioned, maybe go to Arizona, different parts of the country to prepare for those regionals. Well, we played Arizona State tournament, not just because I'm a really good friend of Matt Thurman. He's a wonderful coach, he by is. the way. Uh, but just to get in the desert before the NCAA championship, we play Olympia Fields because I want the boys to see what big boy golf looks like. I yeah. mean, you've got a lot of rough, and it's usually gnarly, and then the trees are gigantic. And if you knock it over those greens, you are done. You're finished. It's just and it's a very positional-type golf course, which is wonderful. I love getting to go all around the country and, and play in all the different events. Tell the kid kind of what he needs to work on. You're gonna if you want to play the tour, as you well know, Jim, you got to play in all parts of the golf uh, the country in different grasses and different conditions. Absolutely, that's so well uh, thought of. I think we're seeing that a little bit more. We didn't know what was going to happen after COVID, whether we were going to have to stay regionally for a while. It's great to see everything coming out there. It's amazing how competitive, and now college golf being on TV and it's several tournaments are on TV. I think it's been great. Uh, it's been exciting to be part of that. I appreciate you being with us. I know you. You got a busy schedule coming up. The, uh, the the men are there getting back on campus. Uh, we wish you a lot of luck and appreciate you spending some time with us this uh, on this podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Jim. Uh, let me know when it's going to be aired. I can't wait to see how I or hear how I sounded. <laughs> well, you sounded great. Once they get over the technical difficulty, we're doing good. But I always kind of like to end it on this: whether in life or golf, you may have only one shot. You got to make it count. You're making it count and a lot of these young men's lives, and we appreciate uh, the effort you put forward. This has been an incredible uh, uh, you know, 30, 40 minutes with you. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Well, we really appreciate uh, Coach Mike McGraw. What a great uh, guest we had on today. Uh, he did a great job, gave us great information, and I know that's why we do this podcast. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate Steve Azar for allowing us to use his music. And you can get uh, find Steve at steveazar.com. Uh, his latest song is now the state song of Mississippi, One Mississippi. We played that in this podcast, so it's uh, really great that he allows us to use that. Get your copy of Only One Shot. That's available at Amazon. That was written by V.J. Trollio, the teaching professional at Old Waverly. And until next time, thanks for being with us. I said one Mississippi, there's a magnolia tree. Two Mississippi, where a mockingbird sings out on his limb. Whistling that sweet soul. Mississippi to this land called home